0: Welcome to the Best Coast Political Podcast with Jeremy Cardona and Matt Dell, coming to you from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, today known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. And in fact, Matt, you are over in the the interior, so you're on uh, different traditional territories, right?
1: Yes, I am, and um, I didn't do any research to be able to do a proper acknowledgement, so I apologize for that. I'm I'm in Kelowna. Uh, My hometown is the Osuos Indian Band, home of the Silex. First Nations um I'm not sure if that's the same um you know language group is in Kelowna or not um but uh yeah I'm in Kelowna right now it's nice to catch up and and chat a little bit uh and in, in, as a break from hanging around the beach with my kids and touring wineries and whatever else I've been doing
0: guess what this is our 20th episode
2: whoa wow yeah
0: 20 episodes so it's uh just uh, pff, we should probably do a little bit of a retrospective at some point. When did we actually have our first episode? Was it September or October of last year?
1: I don't even know.
0: Middle of the pandemic. Well, once we were totally bored from the pandemic. But uh, I, uh, you know, today I should, should probably introduce our guest. Um, we have the chief of police for Victoria Police Department, Chief uh, Del Manick on the podcast. We landed a big guest. Well, we've landed a number of big guests on this podcast, but this is another big guest, Delmatic, He's a he's a big guest. I mean, he's he is a busy guy. That's the
1: thing. That's the thing for me. I you know I, I really appreciate him. I think we I interviewed him on his lunch break. This is a guy that oversees 250 staff. You know, every criminal issue happening in the city. I, I don't imagine he has much free time. And so it, it's I do truly appreciate when people come. Um, you know, we did send him some some hard questions. Like we didn't hold back too much. Um, so uh, you know we, we've covered a lot of ground he clarified some issues there's some issues I wish we'd have more time to clarify but it's, it's a complex business and uh, I thought the interview was, was pretty good so we'll get into that later
0: this interview was actually conducted ahead of time and uh, that's why you'll hear only Matt's voice because Matt interviewed the chief uh, I think over lunch one a, a few days ago is that right Matt
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did it on my yeah. lunch break the day before our vacation. T- totally crazy day, but it was actually a nice uh, time to take a break. And
0: yeah. Yeah, but they actually asked us, I reached out first to the chief's staff, and they asked us to submit questions in advance, which is fine. We've had a few guests do that. So we actually had to spend some time thinking ahead of time about what do we actually want to ask the, the chief of police in Victoria, we don't want to waste this time, we want to ask real questions, ask serious questions. And so the questions that we came up with are largely around police reform. We asked questions about Black Lives Matter and, and what that whole movement, mainly in the U.S., but also in Canada, what, it, what, what effect it might have in Victoria, what effect it has had on the Vic PD. So we, you'll hear questions about that. And then we also have questions about some of these new programs that have been created in Victoria, one of which is called ACT, and the other one is called Imsert. And I don't know, I'm guessing that most of our listeners are not familiar with them. So I'm just gonna introduce these programs really briefly. IMCERT stands for Integrated Mobile Crisis Response Team. And it is uh, a program in which child and youth mental health clinicians work alongside adult mental health clinicians, social workers, nurses, and plainclothes police officers to provide a rapid mobile community-based response to children, youth, and families in crisis. So this is a new program that the Vic PD is involved in, and it is in conjunction with mental health and addiction services. It's in conjunction with the province and Island Health, I believe. And it represents this kind of new model of policing where you don't just have enforcement, but for certain calls, you have street nurses show up or you have mental health workers or you have social workers. And the second program, the one that actually gets discussed more in the interview, which our our listeners will hear in a minute, is called ACT, Assertive Community Treatment. And that is a mental health program that focuses on individual clients and their recovery. And as the chief describes it, essentially, a police officer will show up on a call to, with, with a street nurse or with a nurse or with a social worker and address certain kinds of calls that are not really about criminality. They're more about mental health or wellness. But the police officer is there in a support role. So ACT and Insert are, for me, really important examples of an evolution of what community servicing community services are in victoria
1: yeah i agree i think there's a lot of you know things happening that show we're moving in the right direction of police reform where we you know we're addressing the issue seriously where the police are are part of the discussion the police board is part of the discussion uh del manic chief manic seems to understand some of these you know social movements that are happening and um I I see some positive progress, I I want to make sure that all actors, whether it be the police or whether it be citizens or councils are are open minded here and I think reform is part of government, you know I, Mm -hmm. I, I work as a director of legislation in governance and. That is one of the hallmarks of governance is you should be questioning things you should be questioning how you're doing there's very little systems in our society that were set up one way and continued operating that way for 50, a mm-hmm. hundred years systems need to evolve And that's not meant to be a criticism of those systems. You, you realize ways that we can do things better. And I think this absolutely applies to
0: policing. And some of these programs are a good example of that. Um,
1: it's not going to be easy, but I think we're moving in the right direction.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's why in in this podcast, we're taking this constructive approach. I don't think you know neither of, of us want to hurl insults at the police or or whatnot. What we're interested in doing is finding what's working, what's not, and how we can we can have progress and reform. I mean, ultimately, it sort of boils down to one's own personal points of view. But I mean, my own view on policing is that. And I should preface it by saying that I'm from a family of police officers. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the podcast. Thank you but, have, but yeah, um, yeah. I my both my parents are born and, born and raised in New York City, and my mother's side are all. New York City police officer, Irish American cops, my grandfather, my uncle, and now my cousin are all, are or were, some of them are retired or deceased, uh, New York City police officers, and then on my dad's side, it's Sicilian American mafioso types who are all um, legitimate businessmen. Well, anyway, the, the U.S. is such a day, but. Such,
1: the U.S. is such an important issue of the need for police reform because you have very few social services, you have bad schools, you have right, there's little care. you have no services, and then what you do have is these huge police departments that are basically ready to cap capture people as soon as they turn teenagers and get into the drug trade or get into crime or get into that, and and that's where they're going is like, well, if we can't afford these services, but we can afford the police budgets, well, why don't we start taking money from the police? And putting that, and the the model in Canada is different because we already we do have a lot of those services. We have great public education, although there is still people falling through the cracks, right? Like we still have untreated mental illness. We still have sure. huge inequality that's creating the, the need for crime and creating some of these issues. So we there's underlying issues. I I raise that directly with the chief and said, how you know how do we deal with these issues where people are falling into crime through trauma, through childhood trauma, through poverty. And uh, he he seemed well aware of that. And again, I don't think that's the police's job to solve. They're not trained to solve that stuff. That's a a broader societal issue that we need to address.
0: And that's the point that I was going to make is that, I mean, as I see it, the fundamental problem is that we've asked the police to do too much in our society. I mean, if you think about some of the calls that they are involved in, like, have you ever been an offender bender and you have to file a report? Why does the police officer, why does a person with a gun have to show up to take a report? It doesn't really make any sense. Just a bureaucrat or a civil servant could do that. Or if you think about someone who's experiencing an overdose on the street, why does the police have to show up for that? Or someone who's having a psychotic episode on the street. Well, if there's a, if there's a potential for violence, maybe they need to show up. But if there's not, they're not really trained for those sorts of calls. And other calls that have clearly of a, a criminality component or there's potential for violence like there's a hold up at the Seven Eleven or something that's an obvious moment in which you need a police officer to show up but there's all these other calls that they end up getting called out to that they actually they're not trained for and what's interesting and listeners will hear it in a minute is that they don't even want to be called out to a lot of these calls
1: no 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 not at all they they want to make sure there's well-funded services i mean i think that that's what the chief says anyway they want to make sure there's well-funded services taking care of those well, obviously some of those calls there does need to be need to be backup from mm-hmm. police officers who have the legal authority to deal with that kind of stuff and uh, you know i think we're moving in the right direction i think there's been some good you know motions i like the, the police board board in victoria i think seems to do do good work in terms of you know mediating between both parties um, I, I hope we can continue with this progressive and open governance and, and keep these conversations going, because it's not yeah. going to be solved quickly, but we are moving in the right direction.
0: Well, and that's why I think ACT and Insert and those sorts of programs are really innovative. And you're starting to see them pop up across Canada and across the U.S., because there's been this recognition that the police have been asked to do too much. And we need the nurses and we need the social workers and mental health health workers uh, out there on the streets doing Getting involved in these calls and meeting people's needs, but as as the chief mentions too, it's like, well, who you're supposed to call right now? You know, are you are you, right now? Everything gets funneled into nine one one if there's any kind of a a public health or public safety issue, right? Everything goes to nine one one. Well, that doesn't really work for ACT or for INSERT per se, mm-hmm. right? Or these more innovative programs. So just thinking about some of the logistics, it's like, how do you get your needs met without funneling everything through? the classic police structure i mean these are the kinds of questions we have to address
1: yeah yeah you're, you're you're so dead on like my wife got in a car crash the other day the day before we came on vacation oh yeah right. car was still drivable oh, but yeah like called the police waited for the police police shut up you know kicked the tires went oh yeah you could drive it home and she drove it home and we did it because we thought we might have to file a claim or something you don't want to miss that step but that's an officer who should be doing something else and totally it, like that. Like, why can't ICBC come out or something?
0: Like, why, like,
1: yeah, a little, little smart car rips around some, yeah, civil servant with a, you know, pen and paper. So, yeah, uh, I mean, that's
0: exactly. But I mean, but, but that requires the police ultimately to cede some of their authority. And I don't know if they really want to do that right now. They have a big budget. I mean, in most cities, I think in Victoria, they're our biggest budget line item. That's
1: what, 23% of our budget, 24%, right. which I believe is in the 55, 60, $60 million for, yeah. It's a I mean, budget. so
0: like, let's say, let's say ICBC or some other provincial uh, agency were to take over doing incident reports for police, or signed for police for car accidents, right? Well, what would that mean in terms of officer capacity for budget? Or what happens if ACT or MSERT become bigger and bigger and more and more and more calls move away from the police and move towards other kinds of social services? Would that mean a shrinking of the budget? Would that mean a reduction in the number of officers? Or would that mean the same number of officers and they're just able to actually focus on actual policing?
1: Yeah, these are all good questions. I I, I think we should continue on this topic. I am not an expert at all. Um, There's there's a lot of depth to talk about here for people who follow this stuff a lot more closely than me there's some issues that i'd like to explore about specific police funding issues mm-hmm. um and I, I i don't know you know that the, the interview with the chief is coming up here i don't want to you know speculate too much without him in the room here um, sure so well then he, let's he maybe respond. we can
0: shift gears a little bit before we move to your pre-recorded interview with him uh and i can talk a little bit about what's going on in my life with uh my opinion piece and with fernwood forward
1: association you caused uh, a little bit of a stir and it kicked off some conversation Um, oh yeah so yeah I mean what's going on (laughs) well it's
0: uh, it's been a heck of a month for me I have to say Matt in 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 my little world Um, June 21st was a big day for me because I had not one but two very big opinion pieces come out on the same day and one was in The Guardian I was asked by The Guardian to write an opinion piece about how the pandemic has affected the sustainability movement and what the sustainability movements going to look like moving forward. So I was totally honored to write that piece. And that piece came out on June 21st. And then on the exact same day, another piece that I wrote this time for the Capital Daily came out in which I argued that community associations need to evolve. In fact, that was the name of the opinion piece. Up until now, the Capital Daily has not had an opinion piece at all. But I pitched them this article and they said, "Oh, maybe this is our opportunity to start to wade into the into the world of op-eds. So I'm, I'm proud to say that I wrote the first opinion piece of the Capital Daily. And of course, you and I have developed a good relationship with them via our joint uh, our joint podcast. So I happen to know the editor now. And so I wrote that piece and I've had just an incredible number of responses. Like I've written a number of opinion pieces in my life. And uh, I, I think I've now received almost 100 uh, correspondences, either Facebook messages or emails, just like more responses to this opinion piece than all the other opinion pieces combined, probably. Um, so clearly, I've struck a nerve in this town talking about this. And so if I could just talk about the background of this opinion piece and how all this came to be, this, the story is that six or seven months ago, I got involved with my community association, the Fernwood Community Association. And um, there's actually two neighborhood associations in Fernwood. There's the Fernwood NRG, which stands for Neighborhood Resource Group, and then there's the Fernwood Community Association, the FCA. The FCA is the older of the two and has more of an official relationship with City Hall. We have a city staff person and a city council liaison come to every meeting, in theory, every meeting. Uh, And NRG is, is a little bit of a newer organization that has probably a lot more prominence and recognizability within Fernwood, but if anyone's ever wondering why there's two community association, uh, neighborhood associations in, in Fernwood, that's, that's the story there. Um, anyway, I got involved with the FCA several months ago after the previous president stepped down, Kalen Harris. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to get involved with the FCA and, and give back to the community. And not only myself, but several other new people got involved. And after attending a few meetings, we were able to join the board because uh, there was absences on the board. And if you show up to X number of meetings, you can kind of be voted onto the board uh, in between an AGM. You don't have to actually go to the AGM to be on the board. And um, frankly, it's been a really bad experience and probably the worst professional experience I've had in my life. And I've been on a bunch of boards. I volunteered in the community a lot in various organizations, political parties, PACs, various things. It's just been a bizarre and, and negative experience, not only for me, but for the other newbies. And it's been a bad experience because the, the board is dominated by people who have been on the board for 20 to 30 years. And in fact, there's one board member who has been on the board since I think 1986 or 1989. So some of these people have sort of dominated this organization for decades and are fairly resistant to change and reluctant to have new people get involved. So it's a pretty unwelcoming organization. And, um, a lot of drama has gone on. I'm not going to detail all of it right now, but, um, essentially what, what the whole sort of story culminated in, uh, in May. And what happened was the FCA has not held a, an AGM since 2019. Now you're supposed to hold an AGM every single year, but they haven't held one for two years and they sort of played the COVID card and, and delayed the AGM. And so finally, an AGM was scheduled for May 31st, 2021. But one day before the AGM, the majority of the board voted to essentially delay the AGM indefinitely. And this is after probably 100 people were scheduled to come to the AGM and vote for a new board. And essentially what happened was the old guard within the Fernwood Community Association caught wind of the fact that myself and several other newbies were essentially signing up new FCA members. And all those members were going to come to the AGM and vote on a new board so that we could bring change to the organization, which is totally legit and fair. What's not legit and fair is that for very, very thin reasons, the majority of the board decided to and voted upon Uh, delaying the AGM, basically trying to kill our momentum and procedure us to death, if you will. And so after that happened, um, those of us who are reform-oriented within the FCA said, well, you know what, we need to go public and actually create a social movement here. So right following that, we decided to start a movement called Fernwood Forward. And it is designed, essentially, to bring change to the Fernwood Community Association and to try to heal the wounds and the rifts within Fernwood that currently exists between the FCA and the NRG. There's 20 years of bad blood between these two organizations. And it's very, very unFernwood to have this, these negative vibes that essentially still continue to divide our neighborhood. So one of the goals is to patch up that relationship with NRG, but also to have the FCA become much more actively involved in the community, because right now they're more or less invisible. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I think you're doing the right thing. The point of community associations.
1: And, and you know, I have a lot to say on this because obviously I've been involved in mine for six years and I've been president for four years. And last June in the middle of the pandemic, we had our AGM over Zoom. It was a great AGM. So I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, you know, that AGMs are getting delayed and there's this kind of stuff happening because it's been completely different than my experience. And I think that should be the goal is in full inclusivity. Um, I, I like a lot of your ideas on, on the vibrancy of an organization. This is what neighborhood associations need to strive to be. And uh, yeah. that's what they need is, is new people who are ready to get involved. Like there's been a ton of turnover at mine. So it's really interesting. Like the only reason I'm actually president of mine is because I showed up to a meeting and everyone's like, yeah, no, no one wants to be the president. And they're like, you're the new guy. And I was like, yeah, I was going to volunteer to like, I don't know, maybe like full
0: chairs or something. <laughs> and They're like you could be the president. <laughs> and, well, my uh, community association is very, very different than that, and I yeah. don't know why, but it's it's much more intense.
1: I like I like your I like the concept. I mean, and the building building you know repairing bonds, bringing people in inclusivity that is all very key. These these organizations should have hundreds of people. These are the essential community building organizations. Like South Jubilee has nothing except for the South Jubilee Neighborhood Association. So, yeah, do I want to get rid of it. Absolutely not. Like we do, we do awesome stuff.
0: Am I, do we want to have more people? Absolutely. The most controversial aspect of what I wrote in the opinion piece, because by the way, I timed the opinion piece with the launch of Fernwood Forward. They all kind of went together. And uh, the most controversial aspect of that was some of the arguments that I made around land use committees. And land use committees have come up on our podcast before. But for listeners who don't know, every single community association has a land use committee that it is affiliated with and technically is the umbrella organization. So South Jubilee has a land use committee, Fernwood has a land use committee, etc. And what the land use committees do is that they review and provide official input on proposed developments, certain kinds of developments in in neighborhoods, especially larger, like I don't know if they're, we're not developed, I mean, does South Jubilee actually review single family home developments? We're only talking about
1: yeah, uh, the single-family homes don't need that unless they need a variance. I believe yeah, so it's exactly. Only,
0: only larger units that need them. And yeah, uh, like part part three developments are called. So anyway, um, I was critical of the land use committees, but even though it wasn't my my main object of criticism, my main object of criticism was my own community associations, and then some of the things I've heard about community associations in other neighborhoods. But I also discussed the land use committees because even though they are technically separate. I just want to make that clear right now on the podcast that the FCA is different than the Fernwood Land Use Committee. They are affiliated, but they are kind of somewhat different entities. But the point I was making about land use committees is that some of them have begun to reform. And Fernwoods is actually a good example of 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 a land use committee that has begun to reform. North Parks, I don't know where South Jubilee is at. Some of them... I've gotten with the times and I've started to work with the city to find solutions to our housing crisis and to our affordability crisis. But a lot of the land use committees and a lot of the people who take the time to show up and go to land use committees and write letters and emails are for the most part vehemently opposed to any kind of development. First of all, let alone multi-unit missing middle affordable stuff. And so I was pointing this out in, in the opinion piece and saying, look, land use committees need to, be transparent about what they're doing. The city and, and citizens of Victoria need to understand the role that they play because we have an affordability crisis. And because everyone has been so hard on the province and so hard on the city, you know, fairly, fairly in, in many cases about the inability to create an affordable society. But local land use committees and neighborhoods have mostly kind of flown under the radar. And coincidentally, on the very same day that my opinion piece came out, or just right around the exact same time, a long-awaited report was published, a joint report written by an expert panel that was sponsored by the province and by the federal government on affordability and housing in BC, essentially taking a look at why BC has such a housing crisis. This long-awaited report came out. And you know what its main findings were? One of its main findings were that community associations and land use committees have strategically blocked or slowed affordable development. So I was very heartened by that because I was essentially making the same argument in a more of an anecdotal way, and here the here this expert panel is coming along with all this evidence, essentially saying the same thing that I was, which is that neighborhoods have blocked affordable development.
1: Yeah, well, uh, land use committees. Dave Thompson wrote a good piece in the Times Colonist a week or two ago about Calix. Like, they really should be nonpartisan bodies. I don't think they're allowed to provide actual. Um, Input that what they do is they they have a, they book a room, they hold a meeting, and they gather community citizen input and they write a report. This many people supported it, this many people denied it. They should not be going, so Jubilee does not like this or does not like that. It should should be non-biased. And and as Dave Thompson wrote, when they are biased, council looks at that, should be smart enough to know this is biased and throws it out and doesn't doesn't actually follow it. And and council also needs to look at the bigger picture of course residents are going to have their own view but council has housing needs reports council has higher level documents and the, and the calic document should not be does a neighborhood say yes or no the neighborhood input is, is one piece of a much larger
0: larger puzzle i mean it's true that they don't have the right to block a development but and i have several examples of this in the caledonia development the one that's going going to go in next to vic high right which is going to be this four or five story Mostly affordable units that is um, on land owned by the school district. Anyway, people in Fernwood will know what I'm talking about. But the, the land use committees have the ability to slow things down enormously by like a year or two. So they don't have the absolute right or authority to say a development is not coming to our neighborhood, but they can kind of throw a monkey wrench into the whole process. And I find that to be sort of unacceptable given that we're dealing with this affordability and housing crisis. And the city actually agrees. So when I was doing research for the opinion piece, they're currently reviewing the terms of reference for community associations in Calix because it's it's sort of ambiguous what it is they're doing. What is their role? What, what are their authorities? There's a lot of ambiguity. What a lot of people think, and this is what I think is like community input. We just talked about
1: Langford where there's no community input. Council is plows for right. whatever they want with no planning and residents are going, Wait a second our communities aren't livable anymore like where's the actual infrastructure here so i I don't agree with getting rid of community input what where calix should do is make developments better like how does the traffic flow is there enough green space is this going to be a good place for kids to live like livable communities so i think that should be the focus of what i'd like to see calix doing more of like how can this better the neighborhood rather than do we want it or do we not want it which of course, puts people in this mode of like, no, like, no, 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 like, oh my God, what, like, it gets, it gets, it gets, it gets uh, residents all kind of anxious about new developments. And that shouldn't be what's happening. It should go, here's what's happening. How can we make this better? And I think community re- in- residents can have positive input.
0: And here I want to clarify one of the points I made in my opinion piece, which is that I'm not looking to criticize individual people who volunteer and go to Calic meetings. That's not, that was not the intention. The intention was to criticize the system. There's some structural problems, right? I mean, who is it that has the time 7 p.m. on a weeknight to go out to a land use meeting? It's mostly an older retired single family home crowd. It doesn't mean that that's 100 of the people showing up, but that's the overwhelming majority. It's not my 20 year old students at UVic who have the bandwidth and the capacity. In fact, it's not even people like you and I who are around 40 and have little kids. We don't have the capacity to do that stuff. And so as a result, various underrepresented demographic groups Aren't showing up to land use meetings. They're they're by and large not involved in community associations, and so you have this narrow self-selecting group of people who tend to dominate those uh, those kinds of meetings and those count in those committees. That's a problem because you know a community association or Calic should be a true representation of all the people who live in the neighborhood, and right now I just don't think that they are. So that's a systemic problem. And even broader a representation of the people living in the
1: city. And that's what I've always said is like, you know, if someone's struggling with housing affordability in this part of the city might really support an affordable unit over here, but they're not going to come to the Tuesday night, seven o'clock meeting. And and again, that's where those broader council documents, council needs to be looking like, what are our growth projections here? What, what kind of housing are we missing here? How many people are moving here and what kind of units aren't available? And, and, And I feel like I've been involved for six years. I don't have that kind of information. I think, the city could do a lot better. I'd like to come see them come and go, Hey, your area is going to grow by 20%. Where do you think the growth would be best? Would it be more townhouses in the middle? Would it be one huge tower on the corner? Would it Mm -hmm. be this, that? And then when the proposal comes, you can go, Hey, this kind of fits into our local area plan. And this fits into the city's official community plan. And right now, you know, that's a lot of technical information and,
0: you know, you don't want to get bamboozled by, Oh, and um, right now they're, they're, you know, the, the community associations are so far from that. As you know, because you serve on VCAN, which is the meta organization of, of community associations in Victoria, what happened recently, this is sort of news that probably flew under the radar for a lot of people, but what happened recently is that the city of Victoria came to VCAN and said, how would you guys feel, you, the collective community associations of Victoria, how would you feel if we were to bypass the land use committee process for a certain class of developments? And that class of developments would be Developments that were owned or operated by a nonprofit like BC Housing, not for profit developments, and mixed use, um, not mixed use, multi unit residential buildings, missing middle type stuff, like three, four, five story stuff uh, that uh, is in line with the official community plan. Because right now, going through the Calic process is so cumbersome, it slows things down. How would you feel if we were to bypass just on that class of developments? We're not talking about private developments. And VCAN basically said, hell no and that's uh, of, that's that's not exactly true i mean i was there well, they didn't say yes no but I, I, we had we, well
1: south jubilee didn't sign a letter like we we said i need we need more information and we want to provide a, a proper we want to we want to provide an olive branch to the city and north park also did the same thing they said like hey the intent is good here how can they work here and then yeah a bunch of other neighborhoods decided to sign on and say no, you know the three-week community process is not what's slowing all of this down like you know we feel that that staff time is slowing this down blah 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 and I don't I didn't have that information and I didn't feel comfortable writing the letter uh Fernwood did sign Fernwood did sign a letter I
0: believe of course, so of, course of course they did so but here's the thing yeah. is that the reason that South Ghibli didn't sign is because you're involved right and you're a younger more progressive reform-oriented person but the people who dominate most of these community associations are not open to even working with the city. They just see the, the city as the opposition and the enemy. And the, and the notion that someone's gonna come in and bypass uh, the process, they were so... But that, that bothers me when I think about all the unhoused people in the city, when I think about my students, when I think about my mother who moved here from out of province and had a hard time finding housing. There's so many people having a hard time finding housing, let alone affordable housing. And then you have these associations which are dominated by people who own homes or been in their established rental situation for 20 or 30 years saying, no, 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 no. It just strikes me as inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the whole
1: process, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is um, and, and maybe we need to have a whole dedicated podcast to this, Definitely, this episode, because um, I, I do got to run on this one. And we could talk about that. I have six years experience here. I have a lot of things to say and it, it's, it's complicated. Um,
0: yeah. We should, we should explore it further with, with a, you know, a range of guests on this issue. We should, we should. I mean, before we bring on uh, the pre-recorded interview with the chief, I just want to just, I just want to read a couple of short responses that I received to my opinion piece because I, I, like I said, I've received almost 100 pieces of correspondence, most of which have been supportive and have been from people around the city saying, I've had a similar experience to you, Jeremy. And I did have some hostile and angry emails too saying, Jeremy, you've you've exaggerated the situation. Okay, maybe you've had a bad experience with the FCA, but that doesn't mean that this is a systemic problem. Well, if you'll humor me for one minute here, Matt, I'm going to read little snippets of responses that I got from around the city, and I've anonymized them, so you can't tell. I'm not going to read their names, and I've anonymized what neighborhood they're in. Quote, I am a gay BIPOC male and joined my association's board of directors recently at the invitation of a friend. Every step along the way, I've experienced everything you have said, and it is really beginning to drain on me and my friend. My time on the board has been fraught with voicing my opinion and immediately told off by folks who own their own home that my ideas won't work for the neighborhood, as if I have not lived in my neighborhood for over five years myself, and some of them still maintain quote, legacy connections, basically no longer living here, but still being more influential than I am an actual resident, end quote. Quote. I wanted to drop you a quick note to say brilliant article, Jeremy. As someone who watched the opposition mount to Caledonia from very vested single-family and anti-affordability interests, you hit the nail on the head, end quote. Quote, My community association is a lost cause. It's the same clique that's been around for years. You can attend a board meeting, but nobody will listen to you. And the Calic has slowed down so many affordability proposals. You're right to say that the affordability crisis is partly the fault of communities who create roadblocks to change, end quote. Quote, I read your essay on community associations in the Capital Daily. I thought it was a great article and consistent with my experience. While no longer on the board, I spent over a a decade on my community associations board and witnessed the problems you mentioned. A half dozen people, residents within a few hundred meters of of the community association center, dominate the association and made decisions and pronouncements without even bringing those items before the board, end quote quote, I generally agree with Jeremy Cardona's article outlining the problems with the city's community associations and, in particular, what I've directly witnessed from the engagement of several calics. As a matter of fact, I've made presentations to Victoria Council where I outlined the deficiencies of the calic process and publicly declared them as frauds, end quote, on and on and on and on and on. I've received dozens of messages like this. So clearly, it's not just me having some isolated incident. This is a systemic problem that's going on all across the city. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think this is a great discussion. I have a couple of
1: ideas. I, I do want to remind you, these are not-for-profit societies governed by the Societies Act. The Societies Act, I worked with 5,000 not-for-profits for a number of years in the Community Gaming Grants. Every single one of them had drama and they're set up like democracies for this very reason. And this is why people are just need to get out. Like, It's it's going to be difficult. You're going to come across issues. It's not going to be fun, but it is community building. You you either show up and you take over as you've done, or you show up and you work collaboratively, or you show up and you win some and you lose some, and and you do it. Like there's no silver lining here. Um, They are democracies, so you
0: have every right to do what you're doing. In theory, in theory, they're democracies. I mean, they're often they're often out of compliance with the societies act. Here's the here's the thing, Matt. And then we can wrap this up. Is that Every single community association enjoys a city staff person who comes to a meeting. I assume you have a city staff person that comes to your meetings, correct? Yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. And, 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 you have, um, and you have a city councilor. Well, if you're going to enjoy a city counselor and a city staff person, you better be in compliance with your own bylaws. You better be following the Societies Act and you better be run as a transparent, accountable democratic institution because you're not just like a normal non-for-profit. Yes, a lot of non-profits are, are dysfunctional and whatever, but they don't get a city councilor and a city staff person. They're not part of the, the base structure of the city. There's no excuse
1: for that. I'm I'm not going to defend that. Like I said, we've we had our AGM right on time in the middle of the pandemic. I think everyone should have. So so that's poor leadership. Um, we should definitely but, follow
0: up. Let's do it. Let's do an episode on this coming up soon, eh? Let's do it. Let's get to the interview with the chief here. Okay.
1: Okay, we are live here with Chief uh, Manic from the Vic PD. It's a, a very big occasion for the podcast today to get to get a big fish like this on in a super busy day. Uh, we're very happy to have the Chief here to answer some uh, some tough questions that we're gonna put to him. Thank you, Chief, for coming on with us today and taking time out of your busy day.
2: Thanks for having me on, Matt.
1: Yeah, so we're gonna get right into it because we're dealing with some feedback issues. Um, the first question we have is something, how was how the Black Lives Matter and police reform movement affected Vic PD? And what specifically I saw in about June, 2020, there was four motions that went forward from the police board um, to address racism and discrimination. There was a, number one was a diversity and advisory um, committee uh, to present ideas on improvement. There was culturally sensitive and de-escalation training. There's a demographic analysis reform recruiting. Maybe start us off with how, you, how the department responded to Black Lives Matter and how those those um, 2020 motions have kind of been implemented and your thoughts on all of that.
2: Sure. So there's no doubt that the incident that happened a year ago in Minneapolis with George Floyd really kind of highlighted some of the challenges that um, that exist in our society and some of the imbalances that exist. Uh, I mean the incident was a horrific incident uh, that I think captured all of us including myself and and our police officers here in Victoria. Uh, That how could somebody treat another human being in that manner, somebody who was in need of help uh, and, and the officer just disregarded those pleas and cries for help. And so we we want to make sure that we have the community support and the community's trust. They give us our social license to do our job and so that to me is most critical and although the incident happened in the United States and it's a different country with different laws and and don't have the civilian oversight and a national use of framework similar to what we have here in Canada, it really opened up a lot of eyes, including those for myself and and our organizations and even across Canada to really start looking at policing and how we can better connect with our uh, BIPOC communities, uh, with our indigenous communities and how we can kind of bridge the gap, build a trust and make sure that any incident like that where there's an an absolute abuse of authority an abuse of power, a police brutality, uh, anything where someone is targeted uh, or potentially could be targeted as a result of their ethnicity. Uh, we want to make sure that we are addressing those issues locally and that within our own organization, we're looking inward and also outwardly building better relationships.
1: Right, absolutely. So d- the motions that were passed in June, has, has has anything positive? I haven't heard a lot out of those. I know that those things can take a couple of years to play out. I mean, just just for the sake of it, has anything come out of the Diversity Advisory Committee Presenting ideas on improvement, um, or or any of the other motions that you think is worth mentioning, or you're feeling excited about.
2: Yeah, no, there's uh, there's been lots of movement. Uh, there was a couple of well, COVID uh, was kind of the biggest barrier to engaging with our Black, Indigenous, and and persons of color communities, uh, and so that's been a challenge. Uh, there's been there's been traction. Uh, also, what happened is with our Greater Victoria Police Diversity Advisory Committee. What happened, Matt, is that we had a change in, uh, in leadership. Both the police co-chair for that committee and the community co-chair were just at the stage where they were transitioning out. So that created uh, some additional kind of gaps and and allowed a little bit more time that was needed to, for us to, to get up to speed and then to kind of re-energize the team and to get that momentum again. But I, I know that starting in September and October, the Greater Victoria Police Diversity Advisory Committee which is made up of police representatives and made up of community leaders and um, uh, people from all uh, different walks of life and all different backgrounds Uh, and they're there to build positive relationships and to discuss some of the harder issues between police and and, and other ethnic and and, uh, minority communities is going to be engaging and holding sessions with our BIPOC communities. And as I said, that's gonna be starting in September. I'm excited about that. They're gonna be facilitated uh, by a community representative. I believe it's somebody from the black community. And there's gonna be a number of the sessions. And what we're looking for really from those sessions is really good, authentic, honest feedback on how the police departments can be better. How can we be better? What, What do our communities want to see from their police department? What is it that we can do to build trust? And so what we wanna do is we wanna stay open-minded. We we want to hear from our communities. And then what we wanna do is create an action plan of what changes we can make to, to uh, address some of the uh, challenges and some of the recommendations coming from these community sessions.
1: Great, thank you for that answer. Um, i appreciate the details there i want to move into a little bit you know we were talking about black lives matter and race and BIPOC communities i think what is very relevant also in victoria is the mental health issue i thought we could spend a little time going through the mental health concerns i know you, you address this daily um we just went through a terribly difficult period in victoria you know myself just as, as a regular dad looking from the outside with the mental health crisis and homelessness crisis just being exposed for what it was as a result of covid and i think that put a lot of pressure on 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 our healthcare systems and policing systems to go how how we've been addressing mental health concerns this clearly has not had had the positive has not solved the issue which is a lot of people i think we're hoping for for new ideas so I wanted to spend a bit of time talking about the ACT team, the IMCRT team, and the CAHOOTS model, which I know you've talked about a little bit. Um, you know, the ACT team had some setback this year with a couple of the officers had to be reassigned due to funding issues. Um, looks like there's a couple hundred people on that team. Have you been any, any good progress on the ACT model or implementing something like the CAHOOTS model, which is based out of uh, Oregon, I believe, and that stands for Crisis Assistance helping out on the streets. So teams of mental health professionals, nurses, and possibly police officers there. What's the status of these programs? And are you satisfied with where they're at right now? Or, or what are we hoping to kind of move forward to allow police to do policing work and not the mental health work, which you're, you know, is not the main part of your job?
2: Yeah, so there's been a lot of traction um, that's been made in this area of work. Uh, much needed traction. Uh, I have been saying all along, in fact, the Victoria Police Department released a transformation report in the summer of 2019. That's two years ago. And uh, in that plan uh, was a recommendation that we work with our health authority and that we come up with alternate service delivery models. Not every call requires a police officer. Uh, Some calls do require a police officer. And I think it's important to make that distinction that, uh, and I'm I'm gonna clarify for you. So where somebody is feeling stressed, anxious, they have a level of anxiety and there's no violence and there's no weapons and there's no criminality. There is a higher likelihood where the police don't need to attend that call. I don't want to attend that call and my officers don't want to attend that call. It's not a police call, Uh, it's a health issue. So we're working with Island Health, and I'm proud to say that there's been actually some significant movement in this area of our health authority locally here, creating a civilian led mental health response model. Now, what we're working on is, uh, I actually got a meeting later today with the president CEO of Ecom. Uh, we, We have to figure out and navigate how will people call in, So if they see somebody on the street that is struggling, that they think needs help, uh, but it might fall to under the category that a civilian team could respond to, uh, we need a way for the public to be able to call. Uh, Do they call directly to a hub that Island Health has in place? Do they call to the non-emergency number for the police department? Uh, My view on it is I actually don't think it should be a call to the non-emergency police number because it's not a police call. It is a health call. So so that's what we're working for uh, and working on. However, the health authority needs to have the capacity and the infrastructure in place so that if somebody is calling to report somebody that, it, that they feel uh, needs intervention, that Island Health is going to be able to take the call, take the information, triage the call, and dispatch their civilian mental health clinicians to be able to help this individual. What I also want, though, is I want this civilian team to have access to the Victoria Police Department. I want real-time access because, in talking to the CAHOOTS model that you mentioned, that's in Eugene, Oregon. One of the things uh, when I when I talk to um, uh, the executive directors of that program, and it's a civilian team that responds, uh, they have a they have a really good working relationship with the Eugene Police Department because not every call is as it turns out to be. So sometimes the call can escalate or the behavior of the individual can escalate and in other cases it can de-escalate. And of course in some cases it stays the same. So what can happen uh, is that a civilian team could respond only to find that there's more complexity or there's some uh, weapons or there's some risk of violence and now the civilian uh, mental health professionals don't have the capability to de-escalate in a way that is keeping them safe while they're interacting with this particular individual. Well, I want to make sure that those civilians have an opportunity to retreat to safety and to call the police, but not wait in line, and for us to be able to respond quicker so that we can de-escalate the situation so that they can do their important work. So I want to kind of create these lines of communication and support for the team, because otherwise, if you, if you think about this, it would be highly ineffective, if you had a team that responded and, and it, it, in the event and the example that I gave, they couldn't respond because of uh, personal safety concerns and the behavior that was exhibited when they got there, if they had to wait two three hours for the police to respond, I mean, that would be a highly ineffective model. So I'm trying to work uh, with the health authority on addressing how do the calls come in, how are they triaged, and how can the police department play a support role, but an important role. And, and as I said before, What's really important to to differentiate, and many people kind of get this wrong or they don't understand it, is police will always have a role in mental health. Uh, As much as I feel that we're not the experts and I wanna have a civilian mental health team respond in the first instance. uh, Where there is violence, weapons, criminality, you're going to need the police to be there in a support role or at least to deescalate where a mental health professional can intervene, and then the police can can back away and then allow that interaction and that assessment and assistance to take place. So, so we, we I think we can do better in working together. Um, and I can certainly talk about the ACT team and the Insert team, if you like.
1: Yeah, the ACT team. I have not heard about the ACT team. This is the Assertive Community Treatment team since Jack Knox. In the wrote a TC article about it, that was quite. Uh, widely shared in May, I believe, where two to three officers were reassigned to budget pressures. And, you know, there was some criticism of that. How is that team operating without those officers? Is that, is that work continued on the ACT team? That was in May 1st, I believe. How's that going? And how are they, I I believe they have about three or 400 patients. So the ACT team, as per my understanding, is not something where someone calls in from the street and goes, I see someone in crisis. The ACT team are our clients who you are registered in the system and they have, a, they have a team of people who support them. What's the status on that program right now without these officers um, assigned or reassigned?
2: Yeah, so thank you for flagging this. This is a really, really uh, significant community issue. Um, it's, the, the, it's been challenging for the health authority uh, I've had discussions with senior leaders from Island Health. Um, the, just, just to kind of lay it out for your listeners. So the assertive community treatment teams commonly referred to as the ACT teams, as you mentioned, uh, there's four teams uh, in Victoria. Each, each of the teams has about 80 to 85 clients that, that they are assigned to. So you can imagine that's you know, 320 plus clients served by these four teams. Each of these ACT teams have mental health professionals, social workers, doctors, street nurses, uh, mental health clinicians, uh, and uh, probation officers, and they have a police officer, but the police officer is only deployed where the rest of the mental health professionals feel that there's a safety risk for staff and they need the police to be there as as, uh, providing support, providing a sense of safety, and maybe able to de-escalate the situation, because I can assure you that no mental health worker, social worker, or um, a doctor, psychiatrist, or street nurse is going to engage with an individual who is extremely violent and is going to risk the um, the personal safety of the um, of the individual that's trying to assist them, so the police play a role. We have officers that are there. And now, as you as you rightly pointed out, we had three officers attached to those four teams I mentioned. Unfortunately, due to budget cuts and a lack of government support, uh, we're now down to one, uh, and it's created a tremendous amount of pressure because staff now from Island Health are feeling unsafe. Uh, they're unable to serve the same population. You have to remember that the assertive community treatment teams are serving individuals that have severe and persistent mental illness. These are individuals that are unwell. Uh, they need uh, they need tremendous amounts of wraparound services and supports. Uh, and that's the only way that they're able to function. And so when you have individuals who've lost the ability to self-regulate, they no longer display healthy insight. They have impaired judgment and they have a trend towards antisocial behavior. These are the individuals that the ACT team is serving. So it's really, really important that we are proactive and we invest upstream. Because otherwise when the ACT teams are not serving these clients and, and making sure that they're stable, what happens is they decompensate and it leads to a crisis. And so when it leads to a crisis, the only people that are responding are the police. So if we can invest upstream uh, and and it's disappointing for me that the provincial government did not support us continuing to have the three officers on the assertive community treatment team. Uh, But as a result of that, uh, I had to withdraw two officers. Now, Now we have one officer serving the four teams and this particular officer is stretched. And of course this officer has days off, this officer has holidays. So the team actually is less effective Because now they're down to one officer to kind of protect and have that safety space where the other members of the team are able to interact uh, and have some productivity and effectiveness with each client.
1: Thank you for that. That you know, I'm not totally up to snuff on all the recent debates and policing issue. But me, as as a regular kind of dad in the community, I I, I see this quagmire we're stuck in, where you're spending. We have so many resources required. I think rightfully so for people for crime for people who are dealing with these issues, and because of the funding for these resources we don't we can't find funding wherever it comes from for the preventative stuff for the kids in school who i see with my in my own kids lives whose parents aren't giving them the care they need who are dealing with mental health issues right on you know early on in life who are going to be on this path towards god you know god knows what sort of problems later on in life do you spend much time, th- like, I mean, w- maybe with your chief he- chief hat off, how, we f- how do we resolve that quagmire as a society where we're addressing these root systemic issues in individuals, whether that be childhood trauma, stress, all that stuff? Do you spend much time thinking about that? Or are you just totally consumed, and rightfully so, with your role as chief and just, you know, dealing with the issues we have right now out on our streets?
2: No, you raise a really good point. Uh, I will tell you that I care about community safety and I care about the well-being of our community and making sure our community is healthy. Policing is only a small, small part of that. So as a police chief, I have my head on a swivel and I'm always watching what is happening in our community because we can't, the police officers are not going to solve our societal issues. We have major gaps in service. Um, we need to enhance The social supports that we have, the mental health supports that we have. Uh, We have many people that are chronically ill that are on our streets. They're unwell, they need help, and they're not served well. Uh, We have so many gaps in service that we all need to work together and come together and provide wraparound services and supports, but it starts from early childhood. You talked about trauma. Um, I'm a huge supporter of having police officers in the schools being positive role models engaging with youth and students dealing with worrisome behaviors not criminal behaviors just worrisome behaviors it's more complicated today to be a kid and a student than it ever has been because they're all on social media and so you know they're if they're not on TikTok tock and, and instagram and snapchat sharing and talking um these are platforms which also lead to confrontation and challenges and threats and bullying so now it's not just happening on the playground or in the school it's actually happening 24 7 um, because because uh, of where social media is so so where what is the role of the police what is the role of the schools what is the role of uh, social service agencies to supporting single parent families or those that are marginalized or those that maybe are new to canada and and they're trying to learn a new language and trying to assimilate uh, into Canadian society. So there's bigger issues. And I think that we just need to invest a little bit more heavily upstream. I don't want to be responding to calls, which I do on a regular basis, after the fact, when there's victimization, there's trauma, and then the police are there trying to sort it out. You know that there's been a number of failures along the way before that police call ever came in. That doesn't get enough attention. And certainly I'm trying to draw attention to that as a community leader to say, let's all work together, not point fingers, because policing can be better as well. But how do we work together to make sure that the outcome is safe communities and the well-being of all of our residents and citizens is a priority for all of us?
1: I completely I completely agree with that. One of the things that I've been seeing a lot lately, I'm new to the city. I grew up in Osuias in the middle of a farm. I'm now raising kids on an urban block. And I think our our neighborhoods have a a big role to play in building the communities that create, you know, healthy family structures and allow kids to come out on the street safely. And one of the issues I'm seeing in my little street here is the kids can't go out because the cars are driving too fast. They're they're, 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 They're quiet now, they're quick. And now if the kids don't go out, they're not building that network where maybe the troubled kid down the road isn't coming over to my house and having a different adult engagement experience. Um, so that, that's another aspect of it as well, but it's a complicated question we're not going to solve. Um, I want to move on to the perception of crime. This is an issue, another article, uh, is, is the perception of an increase in crime. What's going on there? I, I know some stats that were published around cr- the crime rate. I'm not sure what this is. 22,000 per 100,000 people in 1999. It it dropped to about 9,000 and it's been on an increase to 11,700 in 2019. Do we have stats for 2020 or 2021 yet of that crime rate and whatever, and what does that even mean, crime for 100,000 people?
2: Yeah, so the, uh, first off, I don't have the numbers. Uh, we get all our statistics from StatsCan for Statistics Canada uh, and they're the national organization that collects all the data and they do the analysis and, and send it out to, to communities uh, just to kind of you know, compare as to where crime is trending and where calls are trending and also particular categories of crime. Uh, the latest release that's been published uh, for data from uh, Statistics Canada is 2019. And, and, yeah. I, and I can share with you that, you know, uh, if you look at, well, first off, let me back up a bit. Personal safety, I think is it's it's subjective. It's a personal thing and it elicits different perspectives from different people. It depends on how old you are, depends on where you live. It depends on your experience. Some people will feel more safe than others in a very similar situation. Um, And and that's just the reality. So what we do is, and what we rely on, is we rely on Statistics Canada to give us the data, uh, which by the way is available. And I'd encourage you to go to VicPD.ca and if you just Google Vic PD and go to our website, we have this icon that's called Open Vic PD, and we are transparent as we can be, and you can find all of the data and all the trends and whatnot, and the latest stats on Open Vic PD on our, on our website. Um, so so what we'd look at is crime, the overall crime rate has gone up. It went up 8% in 2018. It went up 12% in 2019 for our jurisdiction. So it has climbed. Again, as I said, I do not have 2020 st- statistics yet, they haven't been published. Similar to that, we regularly talk about the crime severity index. So the crime severity index uh, is a, a stats can figure that measures both the volume of crime and the severity of crime. So the crime severity, so for example, if you had a bike that's stolen or you had somebody that's stabbed, both of those are one police incident, but they require a tremendous amount of resources the stabbing or the more serious call and very little resources for maybe if it's stolen property or there's mischief where some kids knock down a fence and and the police end up responding to take a report so what the crime severity index does is it it takes your volume of crime but as adds a measure into the severity of crime so those crimes that are more serious that require more officers are weighted heavily and then and then i can tell you for our jurisdiction our crime severity index has increased in 2017, 2018, and 2019. In fact, our crime severity index with the Vic PD's jurisdiction is the highest of any municipal police organization in the province of BC. That's not something I'm proud of. We have the highest crime severity index. So this is serious, violent crime, stabbings, robberies, assaults, sex assaults, uh, our crime severity index, as I said, is the highest of any municipal police agency. We don't count the RCMP because the RCMP categorize and capture the crime severity index differently. So it's very difficult to compare apples to oranges, um, but, um, but that's a concern. So that's what we have. We also have annual surveys that we do with our community because a lot of what we do isn't crime related. You know, I, I, we talked a little bit about our response to mental health. Well, there's nothing criminal about having a mental illness or, or or being in the midst of a crisis or being suicidal. Uh, we respond to noise complaints. We respond to suspic- suspicious people, unwanted people. Um, all of these calls that we're going to, missing persons. We, we get missing person complaints all the time. That's not criminal to be missing. That's just somebody that's caring for somebody that they can't find and feels that uh, they wanna make sure that they're well and, and that they can be found. So all of these calls will never Create a call and a statistic under the crime rate because they're not crimes. So a lot of times we look at calls for service because that is more of a generic title which really talks about the demand on policing because it's not just crime that we deal with. But our community surveys also have uh, provide some insight and and there's 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 concern. It's it, it we see it trending upward where more and more citizens responding to our surveys uh, are saying that they. Are that they feel their personal safety is impacted and, and it's worse than what it was in the previous year. So we're, we're kind of you know, trending in the, in the wrong direction, but as I said at the beginning, it, personal safety is very subjective.
1: Thank, thank you for that exp- explanation. I mean, that is pretty concerning to hear about the crime severity index has been increasing. I am very curious about the reason why that is increasing. You know what, you look at Victoria, we're getting wealthier, the the city's getting, it seems to be more beautiful. You're going, what's going on when we're trending in the wrong direction? Is there any relief from you that, that really difficult period of COVID where it exposed all these housing challenges and mental health challenges and people camping in parks, uh, a lot of them who just did not have housing, but a lot of them who were taking advantage of people that didn't have housing and, and and crime being more exposed for whatever reasons. Is there a bit of relief from you now that the province has stepped in and finally provided some housing and got people out of parks or, or, or that just moved the work from one place to another place for you?
2: Well, first off, I'm extremely grateful for the work of BC Housing, Island Health, the City of Victoria, and social service agencies, you know, coming together with, with Vic PD as well. And we work together. Uh, again, we're going to be better and accomplish more when we work together. It's not about finger pointing, it's about working together. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And we have really, really strong champions and strong leaders in this area that allow us to do the work but I will tell you it is difficult and challenging work. Unfortunately we've had many people that have come from outside of the Greater Victoria area. Terrace they've come from Prince George, Lower Mainland, Up Island, Calgary, Edmonton, as far east as Nova Scotia where people were experiencing homelessness and they heard through the grapevine. And yes, you know, uh, the word travels fast that if you come to Victoria, uh, you're gonna be prioritized for housing. So, So they came. And many of these individuals were experiencing homelessness, but also many of these individuals have a criminal history, have tendencies towards violence and or have some mental health challenges. So that actually has magnified the problem here for the Victoria Police Department because most of your social services and most of the housing, not all, but most is located in Vic PD's jurisdiction. So you talked about what is it like from the parks with the transition of, um, of individuals going into supportive housing units? Well, I mean, it's certainly cleaned up our parks in the sense that the parks are more safe and it allows more people to enjoy the amenities in their own neighborhood. But I can tell you that there continues to be serious, very serious challenges in the supportive housing units. Uh, We have people on a daily basis that are exploited. Uh, We are responding to many, many calls of violence, assaults, stabbings, extortion um, and so many of these locations are not at the level of safety that they need to be and the police are unfortunately having to respond uh, to that. So that is an area that we need work and I'm, and we are working with BC Housing and our, and our uh, Island Health and our other service providers who are all trying hard uh, to try to make sure that these buildings are balanced that there's not too many individuals that are uh, that have complex mental health challenges or that are violent criminals uh, living in many of these supportive housing units, or if they are, they're they're not all on one floor of a particular building, so that there's not you know other people can feel safe. But the reality is the story that is untold is that people have been moved indoors, uh, but there continues to be significant response. You know, there was a period of time I'll share with you that. Um, multiple days in a week we were going over 20 times to either a park or a supportive housing unit because the police were called for where where somebody's safety was in jeopardy or there was a disturbance and and there was an unwanted person or a confrontation 20 times a day in a 12 hour shift uh to me that's unacceptable we just need to be better in that area
1: Thank you for that. I'm going to ask one final question because I know you and I both have stuff to do, although you probably have uh, a lot more than me. Um, This is around the uh, perception of crime and the social media approach. And this is something that I've noticed being online a lot. And I I mean, from my untrained eye, I I definitely have to question is the approach of Talking about the 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 cash bust, the gun bust, the drug bust, and putting out the press releases. And I say this because I know with my own kids, you know, when something bad happens in the neighborhood, I don't tell them. I kind of I want the anxiety to go down. And I have a couple people in my life who have serious anxiety concerns. And I'm thinking across the community as a whole: is this something we really need to know about when when a when a gun is 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 or a drug bust or a cash bust? Um, And this approach of, of of of, of, of sharing all this stuff online i feel like creates some anxiety in our community that i just don't think is necessarily healthy although obviously you want to be showing the good work you do um you, you know what's the rationale for that is it needed um you know is do you feel at all this is a response to kind of show people hey this is why we need the funding we are doing this work is it is it a part of that or um yeah what's your thoughts around that
2: no, sure. um and and thank you for asking the question, because I think it's something that probably needs to be addressed head on. and i and I do speak to uh, about this quite regularly. We have uh, a model here at the Victoria Police Department that we want to be a police organization that is connected to our communities, an organization that is accountable, an organization that is transparent. We will talk about the good things. We'll talk about the bad things, and our community, supports us for that. In fact, we get accolades like you would not believe, whether it's on social media or whether it's um, emails that I get, uh, you know, and, and when I'm out and now, obviously I'm gonna be doing more, but even before COVID and of course during COVID, you know, no one really was uh, having uh, community events. So, so it was, um, we're all kind of put on pause, but I receive a tremendous amount of support and, and I hear from community members. I'll give you an example. So when we had a number of people uh, in our parks, and there was a violent incident where uh, a family was chased with a knife or or threatened or felt unsafe and the police needed to respond and it was at the stage where do we do we tell that story or or do we do we not talk about that and when we share those stories the public is informed we're putting the community first and they now are able to make a decision do i want to go to that park or do i want to go to that playground and as i said Public safety and personal safety is so subjective that many people look at that and go, no, I think I'm still gonna go. I feel safe or I've engaged with many people that are vulnerable and marginalized and, and I'm able to navigate my way through or I wanna be quite cautious uh, in if I'm in that area. So, so by communicating and being transparent and uh, accountable to our community, I feel is the only route to go. And the other thing that we do is we get so many media requests Uh, I think it's important to highlight. Now, with everyone having a cell phone, many of these incidents are actually captured. When our officers are executing a search warrant, uh, we're pulling out guns. There's multiple police units. There's police tape that's up. People are capturing this on their cell phones. They're putting it online. They're sharing it with media outlets. And then what's happening is the media is reaching out to us after the fact saying, hey, Vic PD, we hear you guys are at this 100 block or at this location. What's going on? So they're already asking us about what's going on. So by putting out the news release, they were able to tap into that and then do their media reporting that they like to do. So it actually benefits the media and our communities. Uh, and I'm committed to being transparent and open.
1: Yeah, That's a great point. I think I'm probably guilty of that. When I see the police cars driving down the road, I go, well, what's going on down there? I want to know what's going on down there. But then on the flip side, I'll go, oh, I didn't need to know that that happened. Um, I want to end on a lighter note. Thank you for doing this interview. I, I really appreciate the time. I want to know on a personal note how you were feeling when your uh, New York Islanders got kicked out of the playoffs by Tampa Bay there. And uh, who were you rooting for in the final considering, uh, you know, the Habs are an an Islanders nemesis as well.
2: Yeah. I fall into the category. of I'm a diehard New York Islanders fan. So thank you for asking that. Um, But I'm also one of the fans and some of your listeners may not like this, but anyone but the Leafs. So, (laughs) so I was cheering for the Montreal Canadiens to actually beat the Leafs, which they did. I mean, it's just unbelievable run and uh, a a real kind of shining example of how a team can gel and kind of come together and start believing in one another and what can be accomplished. Uh, You know, I know it's just a real good example. So I was disappointed the Islanders lost in game seven. Um, I'm extremely pleased that the team is made up of uh, four lines, no real superstars, although Matt Barzell is probably their... Superstar, but he doesn't even—he's not even in the top 60th of, of scoring. So they—they—they um, they, they have a lunchbeckett, hardworking four-line team without any egos and personalities that carry the team. And I like Coach Trotz's attitude of how how he preaches defense first. And I was quite pleased actually that the team that no one expects went as far as they did. And uh, all I'm saying is 2022 Stanley Cup champs. You heard it here, New York. Huh.
1: Okay, we'll we'll end on that note. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, chief. Uh, you know, appreciate all the work you do and take, and, and um, yeah, we'll look forward to chatting to you again and following your work and, you know, have a great rest of the summer. Um,
2: thank you. Thanks to you and, uh, and to all your listeners. Uh, I appreciate it. And I can just tell you as a chief of this department and somebody who's born and raised here, um, I'm committed to having a responsive, committed, trustworthy police organization and our officers are the best of the best.
0: I just want to thank our guest, Chief Del Manic, one more time for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come onto the show and ad- and answer some really difficult questions for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really appreciate him t- t-
0: taking these issues candidly. Uh,
1: you know, there's some stuff I'd like to push him harder on. There's some stuff that he clarified for me. Uh, I think the chief's a good guy, and he has his heart in the right spot, and I'm happy to see that the uh, department is, is it p- taking part in the, in the discussions of reform. And I think we're getting to a better place. Uh, still work to do though, but I'm, I'm hopeful we yeah. can get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say the things that I agree most with the chief about are the things he had to say about ACT and insert. He didn't really get into insert, but especially about ACT. I mean, it sounds like it was just really nice and validating for me to hear that the chief of police in Victoria doesn't really want to be involved in certain kinds of calls, mental health calls, overdose calls, that sort of things, they don't really see that as their wheelhouse. They want to be enforcing the law, they want to ensure there's public safety, they're not trained for those kind of calls, they don't really want to be involved. So I find it really heartening to hear that the Vic PD is interested in working with other social services to actually evolve what, um, what policing looks like and what social services look like
1: yeah and we got to keep the conversation going like we, we probably won't be able to get the chief again on maybe until next year but uh let's do another episode on police reform because i know there are some other important angles on this uh lots of things to discuss and there's some people journalists doing some good work some guys doing some uh, interesting foi research uh they've been publishing online
0: um uh-huh. so let's follow up with yeah, that but let's, absolutely let's wrap this one up for tonight Yeah, yeah. And I hopefully, I think that the the interview mostly mostly speaks for itself and hopefully people got some of their their questions answered. So um, thanks again to the chief. We'll follow up on police reform and we'll follow up on community associations soon. So thanks everybody for listening to 20 episodes with us. Be well. Okay. Good night. Thanks, Jeremy.